This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents... The American Theater Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, Regional Theater and New Play Development. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in the heart of Times Square, where Broadway and Off-Broadway all meet in order to present the very best of live professional theatre. The American Theatre Wing is very well known indeed for its Tony Awards, but as important as that award is, it's, I hasten to add that it was not created to reward uh, the best review, the longest run, or the most exciting performance that one can ever think that they have seen. It is indeed a reward to show that you have achieved the degree of excellence in the craft of theater. And it is the most prestigious award in the theater. In fact, I think in creative arts. Our programs are many. Behind this Tony Award stands a commitment to the community through theater. And that was started by a wonderful woman named Antoinette Perry, in whose honor the award is named. And Antoinette Perry was an actress and a producer, a director, and a playwright. And she believed very strongly in training for the theater. She also believed in giving back what you learned in the theater, giving back to the community. And so what we do is really we continue those programs year-round. We go into high schools and we go into junior high schools and we bring those students to the theater. We don't bring them en masse. We give them the privilege of buying a ticket to go to the theater. They pay a very small price, but they do pay and they learn how it is to buy a ticket and go to the Broadway theater. And do they come? And they're a wonderful audience. And they've come to all oh, the Broadway shows like Les Mis and Cats and Phantom of the Opera and Laughter in the 23rd Floor. And then we arrange for them to meet with the cast afterwards and ask questions. And so they are, we are enlarging not only their horizons of, of theater going, but also their minds as well. And then these seminars, which are an, an outgrowth of a school that the wing had for returning veterans so they could come and retool their trade and learn what it is to work in the theater from the standpoint of the playwright and the director and the producer. They then took that, what they were learning and what they were working on, into the hospitals and they did shows for patients in the hospitals. This is what we continue to do today. We send live professional theater 
into hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. And the seminars are on the playwright, on the playwright director, on the performer, on the uh, production, on agents and guilds, and today's performance, this today's program, is on regional theater. I think perhaps the breadbasket of the American theater. What has been done in regional theater has come in and fed the Broadway and the off-Broadway theater. And we are very pleased to be able to present the representatives of top regional theater from around the country in New York here for our seminar. I'd like to introduce one of the co-moderators of the seminar, who is Dasha Epstein, who is a vice president at the American Theater Wing, but she wears two hats. She is also a producer. She's a producer and has been a producer of Broadway and off-Broadway shows. Dasha Epstein to tell you about what regional theater is all about and how important it is. Dasha. Thank you, Isabel. Hello. Thank you. And first, let me thank our wonderful panel here who are artistic directors from some of the best regional theaters in the country, and I thank you for being here. Let me tell you a little bit about regional theater. America does not have a national theater, but what we do have are regional theaters. More than 300 companies exist across our country which present performances annually to an attendance of over 20 million people. Regional theater is as diverse artistically as it is geographically widespread. With the spiraling costs of production today, we no longer have the luxury of developing new plays on Broadway or on the road. So what do we do? We turn to our artistic directors and their theaters to stimulate and discover the talents of new directors, new writers, new designers, and new actors. Other than British imports, Broadway is mainly supplied by shows which have incubated in your theaters. These plays then may have an extended life that goes through our country and through Europe. More than 40 years ago, Margot Jones, Nina Vance, and our panelist, Zelda Fishhandler, wanted to provide an alternative to commercialism and to the centralization of theater that just existed on Broadway and New York. They had wonderful dreams. They dreamt of quality, non-profit theater with resident companies, which would travel to cities across the country. The Ford Foundation subsidized the beginning of this program. Today, the National Endowment of the Arts contribute funding, but what are, were it not for the individual theaters themselves and their own fundraising, in addition to the money that grants have given them, I don't believe any of these theaters today would exist. That's sad. Because of the financial lure of Hollywood and TV, many original resident members of those companies have left, and for the most part, what we used to call resident theaters have now become known as regional theaters. However, Many have survived, and we have great cause to celebrate. They've given us wonderful Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning plays, plays such as Children of a Lesser God 
Annie, Angels in America, and this year's Pulitzer Prize winner, Three Tall Women. They all began in regional theaters. Regional theater has been inspirational. It has provoked, it has educated, it has moved, and it has entertained 90% of people outside of New York. It has given growth to that part of theater which is far more than frivolous entertainment. Today, with adjustments being made due to escalating costs, where does the line of commercial and non-commercial lie? Has the personal vision of the artistic director been compromised by the marketplace? Are the dreams of the founders of regional theaters still possible? An artistic director is a little is just a title, not a little title, but a big title, but it covers much more than the name implies. With us today are a group of prestigious artistic directors heading regional theaters across our country to tell us their experiences of their triumphs and their turmoil. Let me first introduce you to Mel Gusso, who is my co-moderator. He is an esteemed critic who has traveled many miles across our country and Europe, reviewing regional productions and theater festivals and writing profiles on theater personalities for the New York Times. Mel is also the author of a biography of Daryl Zanuck and the new highly acclaimed book, Conversations with Pinter. He has also been the recipient of the George Jean Nathan Award for Dramatic Criticism. Mel, let's put the show on the road now and with the participation of our honored guests, review the past, the present, and the future of regional theater. Thank you. Thank you, Dasha. I just want to add a few remarks uh, to what Dasha said about regional theater, a little bit of the background of it. Uh, as a movement, regional theater was more accidental than intentional. No one sat down with a map of the United States and circled cities that would benefit from theater. And yet now there are 200 or 300, as Dasha said, theaters across the country. Almost every major city and many minor ones have one or more regional theaters, just as they have symphony orchestras, opera companies, and art museums. The concept of regional theater was born in 1915 with the founding of the Cleveland Playhouse. But the emergence of the movement as a national force did not begin until 1947 with the establishment of Margot Jones's Theater 47 in Dallas then renamed Theater 48, and so on until she died in 1955. At her theater, Margot Jones produced works of Tennessee Williams and William Inge, setting an early example of regional theater as a home for new plays. She was the first of several far-sighted directors who helped change the course of the American theater. After her came Nina Vance and then Zelda Fishhandler, who in 1950 co-founded the Arena Stage in Washington. The Arena was the first regional theater to win a Tony Award, and it remains one of our flagship companies. Two turning points and two other people who made essential contributions. First, McNeil Lowry, who in the late 50s and early 60s spearheaded the Ford Foundation's support of the performing arts, and in so doing encouraged and nurtured resident companies outside of New York. Secondly, Tyrone Guthrie, who was the inspiration behind the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which was the first major implantation of a theater in an American city. 
What followed in the 60s and 70s was a massive decentralization of the American theater. New homes were found for writers, actors, and directors. As audiences discovered, they did not have to come to New York to see first-rate work. For them, New York became out of town. Since then, regional theater has spread, and sometimes, because of economic necessity, it has retreated. Individual theaters and artistic directors have, in a sense, ended their run. There has been greater competition and, in some cases, collaboration. The movement has remained vital. In Los Angeles, Seattle, Hartford, Houston, Atlanta, Ashland, Oregon, Tucson, Arizona, throughout Chicago. The label regional theater is actually something of a misnomer, suggesting small-minded provincialism. Resident theater is closer to an accurate description. But regional or resident, it is no secret that this has become our national theater a network of companies presenting some of the finest work at the highest professional level. Many, if not most, of our best new plays and playwrights have come from regional theater or institutional theaters. August Wilson and Athel Fugard from the Yale Repertory Theater when Lloyd Richards was the head, Beth Henley, Marcia Norman, and Jane Martin from the Actors Theater of Louisville, works by Sam Shepard, David Mamet, and Tony Kushner. They all owe a great debt to the regions, as does Broadway, which has long since abandoned its role as initiator of new work, but looks to London and to regional theater, places like the Steppenwolf Theater Company, for guidance. With shrinking federal, state, and foundation support, companies necessarily have to look for other sources of money. The interaction with the commercial theater can be mutually beneficial, but it should never be a primary motivation for a choice of season, for a choice of artists. The great advantage of regional theater is in its independence the ability to reflect a director's vision and not a consensus of a board of trustees or a survey of the audience. Ideally, in regional theater, an audience and the artists themselves can be stimulated on venturesome paths. It should continue as a place to take chances. And now if I can introduce our guests, at least the ones on my side, Isabel has already been introduced. Uh, to my far right is Randall Arney, who is artistic director of the Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago, as well as a member of the ensemble. And next to him is uh, Michael Price, the executive director of the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, as well as the founder and first president of the League of Historic Theaters. And next to me is Emily Mann, who is the artistic director of the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey, and is a playwright and director best remembered for execution of justice. And on my left, starting with Mac Perkle, he is the founder and artistic director of the Tennessee Rep Theater, director of many regional productions from Chorus Line to Pirates of Penzance, which they've done. And next to Mac is Zelda Fishhandler, whom I spoke about just a minute ago, sort of the mother of regional theater. Former director of Arena Stage, Zelda Fishhandler is now the artistic director of the acting company in New York, as well as the president of the board of the Theater Communications Group, which I hope you'll tell us a little bit about later. And next to me is Lloyd Richards, artistic director of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, previously dean of the Yale School of Drama and artistic director of the Yale Repertory Company. Thank you. Can we start now, perhaps? Uh, Randy, would you start in and tell us a little bit about um, your theater and the focus of your theater? I know we could all go on for hours, and you could all go on for hours about it, but would you each maybe tell us a little about 
your theater and what you do and your focus. Sure. The Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago is, is in its 18th season. Um, the company started in 1976 as a group of actors, directors, who uh, uh, actually went to the university together and came to Chicago to start a company in the basement of a church in Highland Park, Illinois. Um, the company has grown from its initial number of nine to a present number of 30. And uh, as we enter our 18th season, we have uh, about 15,000 subscribers, season ticket holders uh, in Chicago. Three years ago, we were able to raise funds for and build a new $8 million home for ourselves, which uh, hopefully will ensure our permanence in Chicago for years to come. Michael? Well, the Goodspeed Opera House is in the New England town of East Haddam, Connecticut. It's now in its 31st year, and we're committed to the uh, preservation of the American musical, producing lesser-known works, and uh, to the uh, enlargement of the repertoire by producing at least uh, four new musicals each year. Emily. Well, the McCarter Theater Center for the Performing Arts is in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, we, I think, are the only performing arts center here. That is, we have, uh, from September to June, we produce five plays on our main stage um, of works that we initiate ourselves, but we also book in things. We have uh, a marvelous man named Bill Lockwood who was at Lincoln Center for 26 years and with us for 30 years, and he brings in a series of classical music, uh, modern dance and special events, which are often one-night drama events. Uh, so we are very rarely dark, but we are not in the old-fashioned repertory. We have uh, plays that run for three weeks on the main stage. Um, we're having our 35th anniversary this year as a professional theater company. We started as um, a place where the Princeton men uh, put on their Triangle Club skits twice a year. And this building was dark except for four weeks a year. Uh, and then we were asked as a professional company to come in in 1970. So, thank you. Matt, would you take it from there? Sure. Uh, Tennessee Rep is in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we are about to end our ninth year. And uh, I think our company has right now a, a couple of different focuses. One is to try to hold on to our existence in Nashville and provide Nashville with a theater that uh, indeed interacts with its community in a meaningful way beyond just the titles that we produce. We're uh, out in the country like so many cities where uh, audiences recognize titles they've heard of or read about uh, and don't recognize ones that are relatively new. And a lot of it depends on the trust that you have with the company that's producing that work. And that's uh, a big part of our relationship in our own community. Then a second focus that we have is uh, our attempt to interact with the larger theatrical industry in the country, specifically in musicals. Uh, because of the great wealth of songwriting talent that's in Nashville uh, and a, a group of men and women who pay a great deal of attention to lyric and memorable melodies, uh, we're hoping that in the future we can become one of those places in the country where uh, new writers who are coming out of the popular music field can have an opportunity to interact with uh, writers of theater and create new works for the music theater. Thank you. Zelda? Um. <laughs> I think about the word breadbasket. Uh, and I think about, uh, uh, first of all, nourishment 
for the community which was mine, which was Washington, D.C., and um, taking off for Mel, not primarily for uh, this New York community, which I find myself now part of, but breadbasket. I was taking a master's degree in George Washington University and in, uh, I think it was called theatrical literature or something like that. And my professor said, there are, the theater exists in 10 blocks of Broadway and that's all. Museums, schools, art galleries are all over the country, but theater is in 10 blocks of Broadway. And I said, that shouldn't be that way. Hmm. He said, no, it shouldn't. I said, well, let's do something. So we took over a little movie house where uh, they were showing pornographic films and nobody was coming, sort of down there. It's now across the Martin Luther King Library. And we uh, converted it into an arena because Ed Mangum, who was my partner, had seen Margot Jones's theater because he came from Dallas. And we, uh, all of a sudden, Washington, which had no other theater, it was all closed on the segregation issue, had its own little 247-seat uh, theater with four tiers surrounding a 16 by 20 foot stage where it had a budget of $800 a week and supported itself through that phase and the next phase till uh, for 10 years on box office income that's a little miracle that you might want to ask questions about uh, was it then $1.90 $1.90 we didn't want to break the $2 barrier we thought that would be bad <laughs> it grew it had a very simple mission, which it still has 43 years later, which is to connect the past and the present, to provide an artistic home for artists, and to speak to its community so that its community could be reawakened to speak back. I'm not quoting exactly. The mission was very shortly phrased and without an enormous eloquence, but it is held to today, so we speak. Uh, both to contemporary work and to work from the past. We now have a large complex of buildings which, with three theaters and a budget which has had to drop 30% in the past three years from a top of 10 million, speaking of contemporary circumstances. And I'll leave the rest to questions and responses. Lloyd? Uh, sitting here thinking, where do you begin? Yeah, you know, it's impossible. And it's uh, so we begin at a beginning in the middle of something, and which was a beginning that I got a telephone call from a man I'd never heard of, called George White, asking me to come to a place I'd never heard of, called Waterford, Connecticut, and direct an epic play of the Civil War, that was to be done in a theater that had not yet been built, and it would all happen in two weeks. <laughs> now, those are the kind of things that I respond to. <laughs> and of course I went, and there was a dream there. I went and in pouring rain, and I looked into a mud hole, but there was a dream in that place, and the dream had to do with a concern that George White had about the future of the theater. Think back to 1965. How many places were there that were developing plays at all? I think you can count them on one hand in this entire country. And he was concerned about the development of the American theater by paying attention to the American playwright. And I said, hey, that's for me. And I've been there ever since. 
And in that time, we have done the work of over 400 playwrights and uh, whatever. Now, it was also mentioned that I was involved with Yale, and that happened in 1979 when uh, the, uh, there was a vacancy there in the deanship and as the artistic director. And for me, the Yale program at that point was a bellwether program for training in this country. And as that program went, training would follow. And so it was something that I responded to and became very involved in training uh, because we must have, and you talk about passing on, we must pass on excellence or else there won't be excellence. And so I went there to do that, and part of doing that was very important in the development of excellence and development of excellence in every area of the theater is the demonstration of excellence. And so the fact that there was a professional regional theater that existed as a part of that complex and a part of my job was also an important part of my going there. So I could also go on and carry on in terms of the, uh, uh, I think I touched my microphone and yeah. caused thunder, probably throughout yeah, the program. You lost a button. It's the screen off the microphone. Yeah. All right. Does someone know what to do about that? Nothing needs to be done. I don't okay. think. So right. Why don't we go on and then so we'll come back I would, to yes. you? Really. Okay. I I'd like to ask you. You talked about Steppenwolf being founded by a group of, of young people from a university. Why Chicago? Was it a western university or, as I understood, it was an eastern university that they came out of? No, it was, in fact, an, no. a, an Illinois university, it was, Illinois yeah. State University. Um, Chicago seemed to be a, uh, a natural place to, to begin. Um, most of the founders of Steppenwolf uh, um, are from small towns in Illinois. John Malkovich is from Benton, Illinois. Terry Kinney's from Lincoln, Illinois. Uh, the, the, the group started... Uh, uh, met each other in college at Illinois State University. The founder and artistic director, Gary Sinise, was still in Highland Park, Illinois, where he had gone to high school, had not gone on to college. Um, and when the group get, uh, graduated, they said, Gary's living in Highland Park and has a connection to a church. Let's see if we can use the basement. Um, and, uh, and, and it moved to, to Highland Park. It's very interesting, though. I think Chicago is a very important piece of the Steppenwolf history in that it was really our ability to work in relative obscurity <laughs> for the first 10 years of our existence that really uh, helped us put down roots uh, with each other and, and there was no one really coming to our plays. We were doing them for ourselves more than we were for anybody else. And, uh, and it was really that first 10 formative years before um, the twin-headed monster fame and fortune uh, first entered our doors and uh, began noticing our work. And, uh, but by that time, our love for the work, our love for each other, and our love for this home that we had created with each other was, uh, was great enough that uh, we have been able to continue to grow. And, uh, How does an outsider come into Steppable? We are... Uh, very much in the in the community of Chicago, uh, we work in any number of our plays with certain of our own uh, group in the shows, as well as a collection of guest artists. Um, the group has grown from nine to thirty by incorporating people that we feel are personally and professionally compatible um, with the ensemble. 
I spent three and a half to four years. I went to college with most of the founders, but spent three and a half to four years in Chicago in probably 10 to 12 shows uh, before formally being invited into the group. Mm -hmm. um, whenever we grow, it, it's usually because somebody's been around acting, directing enough that we kind of can't remember when they didn't used to be there. And, uh, and, it, and it's a very natural uh, selection process. But uh, that process is not written down anywhere. It's, it, it really uh, is more from the heart than, uh, than from fulfilling any specific duties. I've always wondered with all the fame and fortune that's come to Steppenwolf, how you've managed to keep all the people together. You'll hear about uh, one of the stars, one of the directors coming back and doing still another show there. In a day when, when uh, we really don't find many uh, repertory companies around America, you seem to have maintained uh, at least a nucleus of people who do come and go. How, how is that possible? That's a, that's a very good question, Mel. We ask ourselves that all the time. I, I really think it's what is in the hearts of those people that started the group. There's nothing we could do to make them come back, nor if we could make them come back, we wouldn't want them to be there uh, if they were there because they were made to come home. And uh, I think it's important that the group, as each of the individuals, um, I mentioned John Malkovich, Laurie Metcalf, as some of these people um, began began to be known and began to be um, uh, offered work elsewhere. It was the group that really encouraged that for them. Uh, the group, instead of being threatened by that, very much said, you go do what you can do. Um, we're going to stay strong here. We'll, we'll be here. Um, and not unlike whenever uh, you go away to college the first time and your mother's calling you all the time and insisting that you come and visit her. Um, it's when she quits calling, it's when she seems to be doing just fine without you that, that, you, uh, that you want to go home and visit. And uh, um, I, I, think, I think that it's, um, I think as the group continued to stay strong, um, and the other thing I think, Mel, that I would cite is it was very important that the group identity, that Steppenwolf, continue to grow. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that even though Joan Allen, a member of our ensemble, has since won a Tony Award, and John Mahoney, a member of our group, has since won a Tony Award, Steppenwolf, the ensemble, uh, won a Tony Award before any individuals in the group did, and won a Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater Excellence. I cite that as an example of the theater and the group identity growing and, and uh, um, flexing its muscles so that as the group continued to grow and as individuals continued to grow, there was uh, very much a home for them to, to come back to. Do you feel that way about Goodspeed? Is that, does that apply there? Do we have that kind of a... We have a wonderful return of artists year after year. Uh, directors, actors, uh, our musicians, our musical staff and musical director generally stay with us. Orchestrators stay with us. But everyone else comes and does a play and will come back another year, two years later, and do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So there is a great return uh, and great continuity of, of performing artists. Emily, I would like to ask you a question since I have great admiration for you as a writer and as a director. Thank you, Dasha. And um, I would like to know how you put all of this together with your artistic vision and can you still keep your artistic vision the same working with the board and working with the theater at, at the McCarter Theater. Well, I'm very blessed that way and that I think it strengthens my work as both a writer and a director. Uh, I went to McCarter because uh, I felt it, it was time to really fulfill what I had been uh, 
uh, to give back what I had been given. That is, I grew up in, in the regional or national theater movement. I was um, a young writer and director at the Guthrie Theater. And from that moment, from my early 20s, believed that that was the place in the, in the national theater movement where you could uh, make new work, whether it was in the classic repertoire as a, a new way of looking at classical work or whether you were writing the new play. Um, and the national theater movement has been very good to me. And at a certain point in time, I was asked to um, really put uh, in my time as a person to, to run a theater and, and give back. And so it, for me, it was a place uh, to be able to create my own work, and that's what the board asked me to do, and also make an artistic home for my colleagues so they could do their best work. And because I'd been on the road so much, I thought, I want to make a theater where I would like to come to if I were still on the road, where I could do my best work. And so that was a way for me to focus uh, what I was doing. So it's an artist-driven theater. We are there for artists, whether you're writer, director, choreographer, composer. This is the place to come uh, to do your best work. One more question mm -hmm. I have for you, Emily. Mm -hmm. In a male-oriented arena today, <gasps> does a woman's voice have as much influence, especially with a board probably being comprised of mainly businessmen, do they give you as much, uh, let's say, money feeling as far as, phys <laughs> as fiscally handling it or as you do as artistically? I, I wonder if that's a sexist question, Dasha. I've <laughs> <laughs> been reading about a lot. I think well, I think I can answer it, actually. Interestingly enough, um, the board um, has been extremely supportive. Um, not only uh, for the writing and uh, as uh, the directing, but also for the writing. But I think they were hungry for a woman's voice. And I'm afraid to say <laughs> okay. it's a very sexist <laughs> remark, perhaps. But you know, I, you and I have had this talk, but not for many years. Um, I actually think that there was um, a, it, it was a plus for them to have a woman come in. And I think, and I don't mean to offend any of my male colleagues, but in a lot of ways, the job. Um, is uniquely suited to um, what is considered a female sensibility. And we witnessed from Zelda that our founders of the movement were, were women. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think uh, there's a real reason for that. We are making homes, and we've done that uh, for millennia, and we're doing it here for artists. I just wonder sometimes if a male-oriented board will give a woman as much credibility in the fiscal planning of her program. I don't really think that... Uh, that's so in the theater. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. You could all answer that better than I can, but I, I keep going back to Antoinette Perry, who was both a writer, a producer, a director, and I never heard or read any reference to her as a, uh, a woman producer, Antoinette Perry, or a woman director. And uh, at that time, perhaps maybe we've grown into looking at this differently, but I, I thought that the theater was one place that that didn't quite exist as much as in, and we didn't have to overcome that much. The that fact so? is, uh, today there really are many more theaters that are run by women, which mm -hmm. was not true uh, when Zelda was at the arena stage. And they're in producing as well, mm -hmm. getting money. And the president of our board is a woman. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Zelda, well, had what's the purpose of, of a regional theater? I beg your pardon? What's the reason for regional theater? What is the reason for it? Mm -hmm. uh, there was a need, tremendous need on the part of the artists 
I know there was a need that may have been perceived or not on the part of uh, the country. I know as a young person when I got, grew up and went to college, uh, we came to New York to see professional theater, to experience professional theater. I think the past 30 some 40 years in American theater history are going to go down as some of the most miraculous years in terms of what has happened. But the regional theater started its major movement out of artists who wanted to do things in a way that they weren't be being given the opportunities to do it. Yes, we've moved into off-Broadway, and ultimately when that got too much into off-off-Broadway, but there were still not those places where you could go and work and form a company and do the kind of work you wanted to do. So people went out into the cities following Guthrie's pattern, following Zelda's pattern, and others, and began to create theaters. That's one of the things that has changed. I think the regional theater is a very different place than it was 30 years ago. I think we have developed generations, two generations of people who have had the regional theater, for whom New York has not been a mecca, who has, uh, who has had to look to, and has looked to, a regional theater, a professional theater in their own home, in their own environs, where they could go and expect possibly to work. So that slowed down. We used to consider, when I came to New York, that there were at least 200 people a day who came to New York to get into the theater. I met them all walking in the <laughs> They were there. Now they don't come like that. They go knock on the door of the regional theaters can expect to do professional work. Very interestingly now, also, and I think importantly, that urge to create a theater, not theater, to create a theater does not exist to the same degree. But those people now go to the created theaters and create rather than that need to create a different space. You know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the time of the off-regional theater, <laughs> which is that next step in regional theaters that say, hey, this is not enough. We have to find another way to do things. Do you mean it's more conventional, that you want to go off, you want to be more experimental? Another, another, that's going to happen, mm -hmm. you know, that there will be an off-regional theater. The new movement will be that, or I perceive it to be. I think that started, actually. I do, too. You think it has started? Yeah, it's, it surely yes. Is it all right if I respond to Laura? Certainly. Who's yeah, monitoring? Um, I know in Washington, there's, there's, there are like 22 theaters in a, a city of about, including the outskirts of about 3 million people, which is quite a saturation. And they're sort of off arena stage. Yeah. They're either uh, in despite you, or in protest against you, <laughs> or in 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 some form of different uh, vocabulary than you, with a different agenda than you, an off agenda, uh, and it's very healthy and it's very wonderful that these off regional theaters exist because they allow for the particular, unique expressions of individual sensibilities of artistic directors or writers or directors. That's also true of Steppenwolf, in fact, in Chicago, as mm -hmm. I would consider that an off-regional theater, that yeah. the Goodman always dominated mm -hmm. Chicago, but then after that, many, many theaters sprung up in uh, reaction to or in collaboration with uh, 
Mr. Goodman. So thank God we're still in motion. That very that in motion and not yeah. just coagulating in the, in the form that it began. One thing I want to ask you, Lloyd, uh, to follow up what you were saying. Uh, what if we didn't have regional theater in the last 30, 40 years? Could you imagine what the American theater would be like? Well, if you go back to what it was becoming when the regional theater began really to happen, uh, it was why the O'Neill began, because there was very little attention being paid to the development of playwrights. Certainly in the New York area, I don't know what had happened to those marvelous old producers who used to take a writer under their wing and support them in development and insist in, uh, assist in their development, but they disappeared. There were writers who did not know what to do, who could not get work done. Now, if that had prevailed, I think more of that talent would have ended up on the West Coast, mm -hmm. certainly. I think what did happen is because the commercial theater did not pay attention. It lost three generations of producers, Pre three generations of really the exciting, innovative producers went to the regional theaters. It lost talent you know, in so doing. And I think that, that if, if the regional theater had not happened, then that talent, because it's going to break out somewhere, a great deal of it would have ended up in a different medium. I, I think beyond um, just nurturing the writers, I think that the regional theater, more than Broadway, has given, the has given writers and artists the right to fail. Um, Very important. And, and, you know, because you got a bad notice in the newspaper, your play does not close the next day. But the theater stands uh, to keep your play going and to keep working on it and to bring you back again another year to try your wings again. Um, and I think that that's what the audiences also have given us in the regional theaters, is the right to fail. Uh, they're like fans in the stands in a ball club. Um, we have hits, we have runs, we have errors, and they keep coming out to support us. And may that continue. There's a, it's not right. continuing in the same arc as uh, you might be experiencing it, because you're so, you're so really highly special. Because uh, there are stories that this is the first year since the birth of the regional theater that audiences have dwindled. The first year, statistically, that Theater Communications Group Theater Facts research shows a dwindling of the audience and a reduction of subscribers, of those faithful who underwrite, subscribe, whatever it is that you want to do and will stay with you. Well, and I think that that is, uh, interplays with the economic dilemma and feeds the economic dilemma. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think it necessarily is good because it responds to economic pressures by withdrawing instead of by saying, never you mind. This is what we think ought to happen. This is what we think will entice you to come. So there's a little tightening spiral that worries me. But, but, but Zelda, something we, we watched with fear two years ago when that trend began. Mm -hmm. And it reached its zenith towards the end of last year. And it's over now, Michael? It, well, I hope it's over. Okay. But I'm seeing something different. Yeah. The subscriber who says, I'm coming three times a year in the same seat on the same day yeah. at the same performance, has decided to wait a little longer. And the place is being taken by the single ticket buyer, which is a little bit yeah. harder for us to find. 
But what we're seeing that's true. is that the age of our audience is spiraling downward. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of an audience growing older, and the average age being in excess of 57, uh, we're seeing our audiences are younger because there's, there are seats to be had on a Saturday night. Uh, and, and do you the think that's a national thing? That's happening at our theater. Yeah. It's happening exactly. in Tennessee as well. Yeah. That's very interesting. Is that happening in New York? Yes, actually that's true. That The, the audience seems to be getting, getting younger. younger. And, uh, and yet, the, the question about subscription is a very interesting one because I d we don't find that... It's, it seems that the subscriber is younger but is choosing plays one at a time much more often than I they are subscribing to five or six. Right. As long as there are seats available on a Saturday night, right. there's no reason to, uh, yeah. to, to Is it subscribe. because of the cost of the subscription that they don't want to put yes. down quite that Part much money it. at one point? Part of it is the habit of committing, uh, the difficulty of committing to like eight yeah. nights I think uh, one of the reasons why audiences have declined uh, is really the predictability of, of the uh, repertory in so many theaters. The idea of cloning last season's Broadway and off-Broadway success. I mean, to look at the list and realize that there were 24 dancing at lunaces around, around the country, 11 Oleanas and 10 Marvin's rooms, makes me think that there wasn't much imagination shown in all cases by the theaters that, that picked them. Certainly, they're all fine plays and they should be done. But should they be done by, by so many theaters? I agree with that, absolutely. Question, that's uh, the implications of that question. I think part of that's also, uh, if, if the regional theaters didn't do those plays, would those audiences ever see them? I mean, I think that's part of the purpose as well. I don't, uh, I don't know, how, you know where all those Dancing at Lunas were, but you know, in Nashville, Tennessee... You mean a stage, for one. Yeah. In Nashville, Tennessee, if, if, uh, if there are some plays produced that if they're not done, the audiences, they're not going to get to New York to see them. Not the, not the general ticket buyer who is, who is buying a single ticket on a Saturday night. There's a certain aspect of the audience that may come up here to, to see theater, and that's part of their diet. But generally speaking, I don't think it is. It's, no, it's, it's certainly true. I mean, that it gives them a chance to see it, although in many cases people would plot their uh, yearly trip to New York and see all three of those plays if they were on. But it does uh, say something, I think, negative about the future if, if, in fact, regional theaters more and more look to plays that have done commercially well for one reason or another in New York, and those are the ones that they pick for their I followers. I think it's a question of balance, Mel. Right. right. I mean, you can do Dancing at Lunas if you also originate three new plays right. and, well, and do a new look at uh, King Lear. Uh, it's just a matter of balances. And there is the question of depriving an audience of seeing an exquisite Piece. I mean, Broadway is part, and off-Broadway is part of the national picture. In my view, should be reconstituted as a non-profit institution because it basically is a non-profit. <laughs> only a few shows make profit. Most shows lose money. And uh, uh, the exchange could be a little more both ways. I think that show is one... That's worth mentioning because it's so beautiful. Could regional theater exist without subsidies? No, no. no. That no. was over. That was no, over. No. The possibility of that, I think, was over by uh, the early '60s, uh, uh, or maybe mid '60s. To get back again to the other side of the fence with uh, Brian Friel with uh, Dancing at Lunasa, I read today in the Times. I think we all did about uh, Brian Friel's play. Uh, the Faith Healer, which had opened on Broadway 15 years ago and closed after only 20 performances. And it got a brilliant review mm -hmm. at the Long Wharf today. And I remember seeing that the last sentence was, this is not going to Broadway. Mm -hmm. Run to see it at the Long Wharf. Now, why do you think it's not going to Broadway? Is it because it's not so-called 
commercial? Or what is the reason? For well, in this case, I think it's probably the actors' commitment. So they, they were locked yeah. in for that period mm -hmm. of time and uh, have yeah. to get back to wherever they're going. Yeah. It, it'll come to, to New York at some point, sure. But it's interesting that it's just the reverse of the show that did not work well in New York was picked up by a regional theater yeah. and redone, just oh, as Steppenwolf has done. Yes, many we've times. done so many plays that didn't. We, we call ourselves yeah. Theater of the Second Chance. I wrote, <laughs> you know, a, two dozen plays, which I can't think of now, that didn't work on Broadway and that either deserve a new look at, a new perspective directorially, or another audience. And um, that's, that's all right. I think that's logical. And, and that's one Broadway, of the functions. Why is Broadway the mecca? What does Broadway provide for regional theater? Why do we say direct from Broadway if it goes to Chicago? Um, not coming to Broadway thing. or on Broadway. The art center, the, the cultural capital of the United States, the center of, of making stars, the, uh, the history of, of the pinnacle. We haven't caught up with the fact that our national theater, and Emily insists on calling it that, and I'm proud of her for doing that, uh, our national theater is a dispersal of impulses artistic impulses. There's still the old reference that's in our head of the uh, the songs, the popular songs come, you know, out of Broadway that have to do with theater. I think that phrase sells, too. In Nashville, Tennessee, direct from Broadway, sells. <laughs> There's no question about it. It's I, I, I'm not in the midst of a sophisticated theater community who can't wait to Sunday go down to the bookstore and get their New York Times and find out what's going on Broadway. It's, it's not part of their uh, cultural need. And the, t the, the development of what they would like to consume culturally is something that is informed by national sources. And if a national tour comes in or something comes in with a, a star from their generation and the way they reference that, uh, if a show comes in and is labeled uh, direct from Broadway, it has a particular kind of... Uh, 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 appeal. Absolutely. That is that is exploited by the way touring has changed in this country in the last four or five years. And in my in my situation, my theater is 90 degrees from uh, the theater that brings in all the Broadway tours, and it is has uh, a very different sensibility about why someone chooses to come to our theater as opposed to a Broadway tour. Uh, but the, the examination is fairly surface oriented. It's a lot of work on my part to get them beyond the title and who's in it. And to say, what's the actual story, and what what part of the human condition is this about, and do we even care about that subject matter? Or, and you know, they're like, how long is it, and you know, do I know the person that's starring in it? Well, I think the ago. important thing about the faith healer was the fact that it was not created with that intention; that it was created as a regional theater piece for whatever that artistic reason was to re-examine that piece and to, and to do it if later on, and for anything that's done in the regional theater that's done in that way, if there are residual possibilities, all right, fine. One can examine them and one can do them. But the intent is what impresses me about that last line and the importance of that intent, that we did it for here, for now, for these people. Whatever else happens with it, that's another, that's another thing. thing. But it is for now, which is a, a great respect for an audience. <coughs> and for a community and for a region to say that we are here, we are here with you, and we create things for here, now, and you.
It's like Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. <laughs> and, and a real theater is, is local and belongs to its community. And then if it spirals out, fine. But it really does exist to communicate with the people of its area. And that's organic to theater. Gather around and let me tell you what happened today. Tell me a story. Tell me a story, yeah. Here's a story about ha what happened today. I always considered my audience and uh, theater when I ran the theater in at Yale as a group of good friends that you met once a month mm -hmm. that you went out you know you have it you go out with people once a month that are good friends you like them you like the conversations you go and you have uh, uh, something good to eat and you chat and some days it's scintillating it's wonderful the food is good the conversation is great then there are other days when it isn't. With good friends, stimulating, intellectually uh, stimulating persons that you'll go out with, and today it wasn't so good. Okay, all right, that doesn't mean we don't go next right. month. Of course we go next month. And that to me is kind of a relationship, yes. or a potential relationship between a theater and its and audience. Absolutely. Where there's communication happening between the seats and between here and there. You know, and that's where does, what it's about. Where does the community commit to this? The community? You have your theater and, and, and you're, you're serving an audience in, in regional theater. Well, I'll tell you what it meant for me. When I went to uh, the theater in New Haven, I went in and I took a look at the theater, meaning the people in the theater who were there. And I went outside and I took a look at the street, the people who were passing up and down the street in front of the theater. And I said to myself, does that group in there reflect this group out here? If it does, then I have a community theater or a theater of the community. If it does not, then there is something wrong and something I must address so that the, the people in the seats reflect the people in the streets. And it has to do with everything I might do How often in did that, that happen? Theater. It began to happen. Right. Not because you wrote big articles and made big, but of all kinds of little things that mm -hmm. you do, and certainly having to do with uh, what happened on the stage where people would come because, hey, that's me up there. That has something to do with me. I am here because what happens on that stage has to do with me. I'll tell you, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the happy, unhappy experiences in my New York theater guy one year was we had a wonderful show in New York. Which and it was, the, it was one of August's plays. And it was the year that uh, Dancing at Lunasa was on. There were some wonderful, dramatic shows on. And after I finished seeing my show, then I went to see Dancing at Lunasa. And what was interesting was the audience that was there, beside the Tony voters, the real audience that was there. Then there was, oh God, a show that, uh, Mel, you can tell me what it is that reflected really uh, Jewish life. And I went there, and that was a very different audience. And I went to, there were about 
four shows in New York that began to attract an ethnic audience in New York. And I, my, my question to myself was, the problem is, how do we get the folks from Lunasa into my show? Are we creating a theater that goes where I am just, where I just see myself, or can I begin to see myself in another culture, and how do I do that? And that's one of the problems of regional theater, the development of that within an audience by virtue of what you do and how you do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is our challenge. To that's a very important question. And, and the thing is, you don't, you do serve, but I believe you also lead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And teach and entice and seduce. Are you talking about marketing? And provoke. And provoke and agitate. No, off from the not, stage. Off from the stage. Yeah. Not, not the in choice marketing. of plays it, and how they're done. Yeah, right. it's not a matter yeah. only of service because then it then you think of other professionals. You don't think of teaching as service. It is. It does serve, but it also arouses and enlivens and excites and evolves the and out People of all of this comes ownership. Yes. And and the, I think the key to regional theater today and its its success and its life is the ownership of that theater by its audience. Um, and you're right. We can't just follow and do plays by audience survey. We have oh, to I lead. Hate audience we know I never did what theater can give you and what theater does give you. It's it's how to get the audience into that theater, whether it's regional or off-off-Broadway or any place else. That, that, that shouldn't be the regional theater's first thing, though, how to get the audience in. I think the, the main thing is to stimulate that audience, to bring them in with whatever they're going to do. And I was thinking back the, in the years when, when you were at the arena, some of the most provocative We're going to have to pick this up again. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mel, but we're going to take one quick break and stretch, and then we're going to go to questions from the audience. And I know there are lots of them, and I also have some questions as well. And then we'll come back to this. Doing seminars on working in the theater, coming to you from the Graduate Center at the University of New York City. We're talking about regional theater. This seminar has been devoted to regional theater, that very important part of theater that feeds not only their own community, but New York, Broadway, Off-Broadway, and around the country. And Dasha Epstein, who is Vice President of the American Theater Wing and a producer in her own right, and Mel Gusso, who is critic for the New York Times, will continue the discussion. And I think we were, you had a question that you asked. Uh, Zelda, it, it seems to me, uh, looking back on your years at the arena, that some of the most uh, provocative uh, Chekhov and, uh, and Brecht and Shakespeare, for that matter, was done at the arena by yourself, but also by outside uh, innovative directors like uh, Pintoli and uh, Livio Chule. Mm -hmm. And I find, looking around America, with few exceptions, that, that that's not no longer, it's no longer true. Uh, the Alley Theater in Houston has an alliance now with Robert Wilson, for example, but I don't find too many of these terribly interesting directors getting a chance to work in regional theater. Is, is that true, or is that not an accurate? Seems to me. I don't, I don't guess I know it from any other way but observation um, and that happened to me 
that influx of directors, as Lloyd was saying about his entry to the O'Neill, it was sort of accidental. Um, Alan Schneider, the, the great American director who died not too long ago, um, brought Livio Tule to uh, Arena, actually. I didn't know Livio's work. And then I got very interested in Eastern Europe uh, around that time and before that time I was interested in. Uh, Eastern European theater, so this whetted my appetite. I went out to see a production of Livius at the Guthrie of Three Sisters, because he'd come to see mine, and I saw this amazing run-through of uh, Tartuffe by Lucien Pantilia, who'd been a comrade of Livius, so I brought him to Arena. Mm -hmm. And then Lyubimov I met in Moscow when our company toured there, uh, and uh, saw his work, saw five or six of his plays, and then when I read he was in trouble in London, I called him up and I said, come here, you won't be in trouble. So it was kind of improvisational mm -hmm. that way. And um, the other thing is, I had a very long run of 40 years. You can't run the same theater for 40 years. You have to transform it along the way by bringing in other influences that fit within the wide band of your taste but are not exactly aligned with it. Or that theater becomes stale because it has its life has to transform. And maybe the theater managements now are so much shorter, the theater, the artistic directorships last such a shorter time that the need for outside influence isn't felt as strongly as I used to feel it. I always had the feeling of how can I enlarge the vision of the audience uh, emotionally, aesthetically? humanly. And that was part of the reason for bringing these. And it's also just my taste, mm -hmm. personal taste. Emily, we were talking a little while ago about the audience's reaction to the project and to the performance and to the play. And I think what is so wonderful with regional theater is that you do get that audience participation and take on a show. I would like you to discuss that, if you could, a little bit. And well, it very much ties in with what Zelda has been talking about, about enlarging an audience and also enlarging yourself so that you can give more to an audience. But what we do, and most of the people uh, here, um, is that we have discussions after plays with the audience, sometimes with the artists who have created the piece themselves, and sometimes because we're at Princeton University and have some very, very interesting people from other fields. If it's a, a piece about uh, American history, we might have Arnold Rampersad on our stage, or we might have Cornell West on our stage, though now he's gone to Harvard. Um, we might have someone from the religion department or from uh, the Woodrow Wilson School of Politics. Whatever it is, we'll mix it up. Um, or for the English department. But I was just thinking recently when we did Hello and Goodbye, Athel Fugard's play, he directed it with Maria Tucci and Jelko Ivanik, um, who are great collaborators of Athel's. It's a play he loves, he chose to do, and I love of his. And it split our audience. And what was wonderful is Athel loved to talk to the audience, as did Maria and Jelko, and as did I. But one day it started with that's a depressing play, and we don't like it, and we don't want to come to the theater to be depressed. So Athel, not taking it on as his problem, <laughs> said, well, you see, that's very interesting, because to me, great theater must be entertaining, and this play to me is very entertaining. And why? Because it's an interplay between mind and heart. 
So she was very interested in this comment, and she said, well, keep talking to me. How does it affect your mind? How does it affect your heart? So there, Assel spoke to this woman and to the rest of the audience about his childhood, why he had to write this play, why it amuses him, this play, where he finds the humor, and also um, why there is this extraordinary interplay. So that's an amazing experience for that particular audience to hear from the man himself why. And by the end, there was a very different feeling in the room. And there was an incredibly interesting and well-informed discussion of the play. And other people who had liked the play could answer other people who didn't under... Stop saying, oh, I didn't like it. They said, I didn't really understand it. Then some of them said they wanted to come back. And then they wanted the study guide that we give, you know, to the, to the students. We've started to now give from that... Uh, particular discussion, we're taking the study guides that go to the young subscribers and to the schools, and we're giving them to subscribers who want to read more about the plays and about the writers. Yes. So just a way of enlarging the experience, and people went out happy, you know, really enlivened. So, yeah. That's a play that would not have been done commercially, no. because of that very same mm -hmm. reason, and because that possibility existed. Uh, I've had wonderful experiences with Athol's plays, mm -hmm. you know, but Ten years, he made uh, uh, Eruptor Theater his home, and I guess one of his plays, uh, there was an editorial in the paper that I was as proud of as anything that uh, I had uh, ever done. That's the reason I was in theater, because uh, the editorial writer said, because the, they were having a problem in the council in... Uh, New Haven, and it was along racial lines. And in the editorial, they said that the suggestion is that the in entire council go down and see the play, Ethel Fugard's play, and then address the question. And it was the theater being used in a very wonderful way. Did the council go see the play? I don't know. I have no idea. I just read the <laughs> yeah. But isn't that a wonderf wonderful yeah. suggestion? Yeah. We used, uh, this This is not a new play, but relative to, to relationships with communities, we did a production of West Side Story recently, and we costumed it and to a certain extent choreographed it in today, in 1994, so that the community could engage in a discussion about youth violence, because youth violence in Nashville is is at an all-time high and has grown 50% over the last 10 years. And we brought in uh, young people from all across the community, from all different walks of life, to sit and discuss what they felt like was going on on stage inside this play. And then there were discussions around the community led by uh, uh, social service facilitators and people from the police department who had never stepped foot in our theater at all because it had it, it, it was at least utilizing the medium to strike a chord that was already in the community in a, in a variety of forms uh, and what happened in the community emotionally because of it was extraordinary uh, because it generated discussion that was political and it was social yet it all centered from an artistic point which I thought was uh, helped us redefine ourselves in the community did it also help bring audiences in? Yes, it did. It, mm -hmm. It's the uh, second largest seller we've had. A lot of it's because of the way uh, a broader segment of the community mm -hmm. was involved because of the discussions that happened around the show itself. We've had that same experience mm -hmm. with two pieces. Maybe also. the Broadway Theater ought to try that. Yes. <laughs> you know, in a way, it's rather wonderful to hear because it just proves how large that theater can be to entertain, to teach, to to provoke. And 
it brings me back to a story that Zoe Caldwell told me last summer. And she was furious because she had gone to theater here in New York to see one of these extravaganzas. And she was told by a young man who came out, I'm sorry, but the audience will have to wait because the computer is down. And she said she could forgive an actor being sick, the curtain not rising, but the computer down. Now, you know, that doesn't happen that often in the regional theaters, and no. I'm happy. You can't afford that. the computer. That's right. very happy it doesn't, because that shows what we can all do. Great, our computer was down a couple of times. Do you review regional theater differently than you would review Broadway, Off-Broadway, or English theater? Uh, do you use any different kind of yardstick? Certainly not. No, I think I mean all, all theater uh, should be equal, and, and all reviews should as uh -huh. well. And I suppose in reviewing uh, something way off the mainstream, off off Broadway, uh, I might feel that one should almost have higher standards because you expect a certain level of exper experimentation, which you wouldn't find on Broadway. But on the whole, I would say that most critics would hold to that. That it, it's it's the object itself, it's the play that's to be reviewed, and you you can't decide that it takes less of a review because it's somewhere else. What do you expect a, a production to give you as a, as a critic, as a reviewer? What do you expect the theater to give you? Well, it's, I would say I, I expect to give, give me some surprise mm -hmm. uh, that it shouldn't be more of the same. Uh, and that surprise can come in many, many different ways in many different places. Uh, it's very easy to, uh, to bore critics, I think, because they've seen incredibly uh, much uh, and which is why anything uh, innovative, you know, gets through, and and, and should be ac acknowledged as such, whether in fact it appeals to your taste or not. You should be, should be aware of what what is coming at you. I think that's what is necessary. More more and more is that surprise that comes in that we're not getting, and I think that's important in theater. And I guess that's what you're talking about doing too in regional theater. I, I know. And that's what learning is. Learning yeah. is being surprised. Took, a connection is made mm -hmm. that wasn't made before. And it's taking a risk. And, and so yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. enthralled and surprised. And I go to sleep easily, too. <laughs> I've produced 400 plays and seen about 1,000, I guess. So it better be surprising. And that, I think, is finally... Lloyd asked the question the other day, how do we get audiences from one ethnic group to another, and, yeah. and how do we get people into the theater? And I, I think that theater audiences find exciting, quality work. And, uh, and, and I think that that has to be the bottom line in any event, I mean, regardless of what created the work or, or why you're working at it or for it. If it's, if it's, um, if it's surprising, if it's, uh, um, if it's good, quality theater, we find our audiences find it and and no matter how much we uh, we scream and yell what great theater we've got going if the audience doesn't believe it they won't be there to see it and uh, um, so I think the bottom line no matter what your mission is is finding a way to do do it in, in an exciting way um, how large is your theater um, we have two theater spaces in our building our main stage is 500 seats and then we have a convertible space upstairs that can be anywhere from up to 200 seats and Michael? We have one theater of 400 seats and one of 200 seats. One theater that can be 900 to 1,100, and I would kill to have a 200-seat theater somewhere. <laughs> oh, uh, when I had the Yale Rapid, it was uh, 600. Mm -hmm. 
That seems the idea. Yeah, our, the arena was 800, and the Krieger, its companion, was 500, and then we have an, had a, an experimental theater, a, a, another space that was about 180, 150, 180. So you're saying between 600 and 800? 800 to one something. Yeah. Mine's a thousand. I, I too would kill for one special. Yes, yeah. you've got a problem. <laughs> more so. We're going to questions. Well, not the size yeah. of the house. Actually, I think it's you can. It's fun to have a big main oh, stage, absolutely. but you need a laboratory space. You uh -huh. need a place to fail. Play. And also, you you, create you need to have a space that can be filled, and not to have to reach out with a product in order to fill oh, this those thousand seats that you have. And I think that that's one of the things. We're about to go to questions. In the meantime, you keep talking. <laughs> Randy, I think also as exciting it is as it is for an audience to see something that is new and that is uh, a surprise, as we all said, I think, too, it's an attraction for an actor to come back. I remember when Albert Finney came to Steppenwolf and did a production with you, and speaking to him in London, he turned to me and he said, I like that family. And that ties in with everything that we are saying. There is a mutual respect and a give and take also. Yes. What is your first question? Yes, my question is directed to the full panel. Can an unknown writer knock on the door of your regional theaters, present the script, and will it be read? That's a question that's asked in general. When the thing about the regional theaters, a theater at all, is that it is remarkably individual. Uh, there are as many different personalities as there are theaters, which means there are as many different tastes and as many different ways of functioning. So there are theaters where you can go and mail a script in, attention will be paid, and you will get it back in two or three weeks. There are others that may take up to four or five months. Why? I don't know. But uh, I can't answer that question in general. But it, that, they, that they take a script and read it and get it back to you at all. The economics of reading plays is very big. It costs a theater every play they have read. I imagine that most regional <coughs> theaters get up over 2,000 plays a year. Now, when one considers the time and the payment that's involved, and the mailing back and forth, it is uh, a good amount of money and time that any theater has to invest in its future in that respect. So, some may have it and spend it, and others may not. Speaking from the frontier element of our group here today, the, the, the economics of our company really just won't allow that. We've asked people to send a synopsis and selected dialogue samples because, you know, I can guarantee someone will hold it. <laughs> Whether they're going to read all the way through it, I couldn't guarantee that to anybody just because it, it indeed takes so much time. We don't have a literary staff. We don't have a department that does nothing but that. We've tried volunteer uh, reading groups that just absolutely don't work and evaluations are not appropriate uh, and we found that it's, uh, it's a much more difficult task than we had first imagined anyway. However, every play submitted by to the National Playwrights Conference will be read cover to cover. 
Yes, this question is for Mr. Richards because of your experiences in South Africa as well as Ms. Mann. How does your institution address the needs of its environment through communal catharsis and still be commercially viable? Why don't you wait for the answer? I wasn't going too far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, commercially viable is not a problem that I have had with my institution, either at Yale or uh, the National Playwrights Conference. That's not the point. The, with the National Playwrights Conference, I am constantly looking for areas that are not represented generally in the theater. Uh, 20 years ago, that was a concern about women playwrights. If you look back 20 years ago at the amount of plays submitted by women to the National Playwrights Conference was 5% or less. Oh my gosh. Now, how do you address that? Oh my goodness. You have to demonstrate that we are interested in women playwrights. So what I have to do? You don't wait for them to come to you. I had to go out and find women playwrights and plays by women and make certain that I even bypass my own selection process into what I consider to be an artistic director's choice and make certain that we did plays by women to demonstrate to writers that we were interested in women's work. The same thing was true with black playwrights that that had to be demonstrated. So you make certain that there are plays there, that you do select from them, that we do them. And that began to increase. <coughs> now I'd say there are 40-some, close to 50% of the plays that come into us are written by women. A good percentage of them are written by minorities. We had to do that as far as the Asian minorities were concerned. And one of the first plays we happened to do, uh, playwrights we happened to do it with, was David Henry Wang. And he went out there, and, and when we did his play, the Asian theater groups in New York all ran up to grab him and make sure they had an Asian playwright. But you address that as a theater question and as a theater problem, and you try and do what you can to make certain that those people know, or those writers know, that they are welcome. The panel touched on educating an audience for theater. Broadway doesn't seem to be doing that. How would you go about educating an audience? I, are you talking about uh, educating them to come to the theater? Or educating them? Educating them to come. Uh, there seems to be a musical mentality now. Many plays of merit aren't uh, financially successful. You know, the, it's a really very sad thing hmm. that there have been two generations that haven't gotten art education in the school system. The generation that I started with had liberal arts education and education in the schools, as I did. I had art education, theater education. Um, that's how I knew the theater was from grammar school, junior high, and high school. And I think dwindling audiences are not only uh, induced by two people working and not enough time and high ticket prices, et cetera, but also because they never touched it. And they, fewer people play the trumpet, and fewer people were in an amateur production or painted a painting. 
And I think uh, increasing access, going into the schools, a touring company that I'm involved with that plays to people that have never seen theater before, wrapping artists around the educational process in the school system so that there's team teaching. I'm also involved with that, with an artist and a teacher. And it's a lot of re outreach. And more and more arts institutions are doing it. And I'm glad, you know, you we have another question about that. I want to thank, thank the you. panel very much for this wonderful afternoon. My question is regard to rehearsing, the rehearsal process. Do you feel that the quality of the performances of the actors and the entire project is affected because of the limited run and their, their means of trying to become profitable? Trying to be what? Profitable. In other words, the, the amount of time only allotted for specific pieces of work is usually a short amount of time. And does that affect the quality of the performance and in trying to do so by cutting the limited rehearsal time because they need to be profitable oh, no, quite on the, the calendar. Quite, no, quite, quite the contrary. I, first of all, we're not cutting rehearsal time uh, in our theaters. E often, rehearsal time will equal uh, performance time. And uh, by having a shorter run, often we, we get a better quality actor who, who can commit to us for that period of time. But we are not cutting rehearsal time uh, uh, to make ends meet. I think in any of our theaters. I think uh, it is. It more has to do with. I know. I sat in the Moscow Art Theater, and I was talking to the artistic director of Moscow Art Theater, and I said to him, because this is always a question that comes up. I said, uh, "How much rehearsal time do you have?" He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "What is your rehearsal time for a production?" He said, "How much does it need?" And it is not a matter of you can't fit everything into four weeks or you can't fit everything into three weeks. It's like taking a piece of art and saying everything must fit this frame and everything does not fit that frame. Every imagination does not fit that frame. You have to find the canvas for it. You have to find the frame that fits it. And too often we are locked in. And this is one of the things that my well, it upset me when the regional theater began to develop its own yeah. processes and patterns. It picked up the patterns from the commercial theater. And so there were limitations, like a rehearsal limitation of four weeks, rather than a totally different thing, is if you're going to create a piece of art, what does it take? So we don't create a production, you create a piece of art. That's what we want to do. So how much time do we, uh, does it need? I learned from the uh, Eastern European directors that Mel was speaking about that you could ask for seven weeks rehearsal. <laughs> and if you insisted then the th and the theater wanted you, they would somehow yield it up. Right. When Livia uh, Julie did Pergint at the Gussery, I remember, what was it, a three-month yeah. rehearsal period he and managed to carve out, and other yes. things had to shift and change, right. but he worked it out. And some of us, I mean, actually do find ways to add and subtract weeks in time. Um, I think we sometimes make the mistake of that thing called a workshop, where you sort of try a little sketch out and then drop it. And drop it. And then no one's available again. So you sort of really do start from scratch. Maybe the writer has 
gone a little bit further, but that, that I don't think is what Lloyd is talking about. I mean, that whole idea of when you all come together to make something, how much time do you need? And I think we need more of that kind of questioning. But sometimes we are able to construct it. More so, I think, in our theaters than... I think we have time just for just one more question. Uh, this is for Zelda Fishhandler. Uh, can you tell us a little about your work with the acting company and how your work with the uh, arena affects what you're doing now? Um, my work with the acting company, and I'm also artistic director of the acting program at NYU, and those two things are related to me. And they're directed in my psyche to developing the future, to developing talent for the future, and audiences for the future, because I see both of those wells drying up. And I don't, uh, and my work with the young actors is not only about voice, speech, movement, repertory, and inner technique, but also an ethics of acting. Mm -hmm. uh, what an actor contributes to his society, that it is a, a profession of dignity and can be one of continuity and lifelong service in the largest sense of service. And also an idea that didn't come up. I'm wedded to the notion of company. And uh, it's an old-fashioned idea, and I'm wedded to it in an old-fashioned way, that you make a commitment for a period of time to an ensemble with the thought that you grow together as you grow individually. I'm sorry to interrupt you, and I'm sorry to have to bring this to an end. It's, it's, I don't know when we've had such a fund of, of wonderful information and talent and knowledge that has been on this program today. It's been absolutely super. And I have to say that although this program is on regional theater and you all come from the various regions of America, it is only in New York City that we can present this all together, that you are all here together. This is coming from the American Theater Wing Seminars on Working in the Theater and from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, the heart of the theater. Thank you very much for being here.